Hi and welcome to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 93 and today from uh, the University of Arkansas, but the accent may trick everyone, is Dr. Stavros Kavouras. Hi Stavros, how are you doing? Hi Lauren, I'm doing great, thank you. Very good, yes, I was just explaining, well, we were just discussing offline that uh, one of us has an accent and I'm pretty sure it's you. Yeah, the funny thing is I don't have the, the Arkansas accent. I'm uh, originally from Greece, and this is where my accent comes from. Yes, the, well, I think it's probably a little bit more exotic. I've been to Arkansas before, actually, and uh, I, think, um, I, I think your accent will stand out just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Stavros, for, for people that aren't aware um, of who you are and, and what you're up to, could you just introduce yourself to the listeners, please? Yes, um, I'm an associate professor in uh, University of Arkansas in the Department of Health, Human Performance and Recreation, and I am a program coordinator for the exercise science. Um, I've been here since 2012. I was in uh, Harakopia University in Athens for many years, up to 2012. And um, my area of interest is hydration, and uh, my laboratory, which is called Hydration Science Laboratory, uh, we are studying the effect of water intake on health and performance. Uh, my background comes primarily from exercise physiology, uh, so exercise and uh, dehydration, dehydration effects on exercise performance, rehydration, different solutions, etc. Um, I've done a lot of work also in the area of diabetes when I was in Athens and uh, now I've been working mainly in two large areas, which one of them is the effect of water intake on glucose regulation. And of course, my, my uh, probably passion, which is the effect of water intake on exercise performance, with particular uh, interest on, on the effect of mild dehydration on exercise performance, especially during exercise in the heat. Great. Well, it just so happens that the topic for today is going to be hydration, <laughs> which is oh. very, very convenient, Stavros. So um, um, the reason why I wanted to get into this is because there's um, uh, a tendency in, in sports science and particularly sports nutrition or performance nutrition, as, as we now prefer to call it, to focus on things maybe the wrong way around. And, and it's kind of sort of at the expense of the basics. We like to get into the juicy stuff, you know, everything from, you know, um, it, how we can come up with nutritional, pro, nutritional training protocols to influence substrate utilization. That's becoming very topical. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of talk about, you know, different ways of training and inducing different levels of adaptation, the role of, um, even in the last podcast, we got into recovery, um, things like sleep, and you know, there's a lot of great stuff. And some of the some of the more, I guess, what we might call basics, like just general eating, not sports nutrition, but basic human nutrition, and in particular, hydration are are sometimes forgotten, or at least an assumption is made that we kind of know what we need to know about that, and or it's possibly not taken as, as seriously as it might do. And it's kind of a, a mission currently for me is, is apart from this idea of science to practice, which is this underlying theme to this whole podcast, but it's also just to make sure that we're dotting our I's and crossing our T's in terms of, you know, getting the basics right. And um, hydration has to be one of those things, but it's possibly not understood well enough, particularly with, with, with more of the, more contemporary research and the papers I read that you've been involved with I did find very interesting because and we'll get into this topic more shortly but the assumption is that um, you know hydration has to be pretty serious you know um, before people might take it seriously uh, whereas mild dehydration which we'll get into in detail um, you know uh, uh, could actually be a lot more um, important for us to, to think about. Um, so let's just go back. We should define a few things. Um, so firstly, you know, let's, rather than talking about dehydration, let's talk about hydration first. What, what do we mean by the term hydration? Why is this important in a performance context? Uh, Lauren, if you let me just do a small introduction about the topic, and, and I'm very happy that Perfect. you alluded a little bit on, on this area, and you spoke about um, uh, 
some people for years have been thinking that, you know, we know what needs to be known about hydration and it's like, let's move on. Um, I, I would like to say that water is a forgotten nutrient. And, and many times when I talk to my students and when I talk to conferences, uh, I like to compare the hydration research where we are now. We're probably a little bit after 1970s when smoking was okay back then. Mm. When people will say, you know, uh, medical doctors tend to smoke Camel and uh, uh, university professors tend to smoke Kent. And people will come out and, and I mean, you can YouTube it and find nice videos of, of medical doctors saying that uh, smoking during pregnancy, it's not an issue at all. And the only side effect, it might be you give birth to a little bit smaller babies. And what woman would like to give birth to a big baby? Mm. So it was. It, it sounded back then that it was okay to smoke even during pregnancy. Now, of course, people laugh when I saw those videos. Like, really? Like, did this really exist? Um, and I believe that w this is where we are right now with hydration. Um, and and in general, if even if we look at the guidelines and and guidelines about how much we're supposed to drink, uh, if you go back from 1947, that um, at least in the U.S., the USDA, the first guidelines were published back then about what Americans need to, to eat in general. There was no uh, reference to water. And, and I don't want to go through the full historic perspective, but go today to 2015. Uh, if you look in, in the U.S., the, the my plate is, is the way to go, I guess, is the official uh, guidelines for consumers, what people see and what they're supposed to do for their uh, nutrition intake. There is no water in my plate. There is uh, something that looks like a glass, but it says the word dairy on the top. So it could be something between yogurt, I guess, or milk, mm. but there is no water. And, and even if you do this exercise that I like to do quite often, I go in the 2015-2020 dietary guidelines and I put the word water. None of those has anything to do with water. Like just to give you an idea, the, the fourth item that you get in the output, it says, wash your hands with soapy water. And when you think of dietary guidelines, I doubt you're thinking of washing your hands with soapy water would be something related to water intake and health or, or anything. So without introduction, I'd like to say that water, it is the forgotten nutrient, and we're barely scratching the surface of what needs to be known, uh, especially when we talk of hydration and, and health. Uh, obviously, a, a clear indication is the fact that the guidelines that we have in Europe and the guidelines we have in the United States are completely different. Uh, in the U.S., what people are supposed to drink, it's somewhere for females to adults, it's 2.7 liters and 3.7 liters for males. And um, in Europe, it's 2.5 liters for males and 2 liters for females. So, so I don't want to open the discussion why those are different and what do they mean and are Americans genetically different than Europeans, which is not the case, obviously. Um, but there is a lot to learn. So as far as hydration and exercise performance, I think we have been uh, a little bit misled by the fact that we're trying to over oversimplify uh, guidelines. Hmm. Uh, and, and I'm very happy that, that I've been following your podcast and I listened what you, uh, what you and your, your uh, speakers uh, are suggesting in many of those discussions that you have that you like the concept of moving into individualized nutrition guidelines. Absolutely, yeah. mm. The idea one size fits all, it really doesn't work, especially when you talk about performance. It's like you're working with a runner and, and or you're working with a group of runners and you say, all of you guys, you have to wear shoe size number 10. That's it. Because I want to make it simple. I don't want to worry about what's your shoe size. All of you, you wear the same shoe size. It's not going to work. I guess for some people it will. But for the majority, it's not going to be the case. And I think nutrition in general, it's a little bit like that. And, and we have to look at the individual um, differences. And hydration definitely is one of those. And, and the variation of the hydration needs could be so different based on your physical activity level or based on your volume of your training and, and based on where you live, where do you train? Do you train uh, in a very warm environment or do you train in a cold environment? Is it too wet or is it too dry? So, so a lot of differences uh, that, that unfortunately makes um, 
athlete's job a little bit more complicated, but uh, um, it, it gives a lot of room for improvement if you use science correctly and really uh, adjust everything for, for optimal performance. I, yeah, I know. I, I agree. I mean, the, the thing I find with sports science is there are so many things you can see and observe, you know, strength, power. Um, even as we get into nutrition, the, the, the visible aspects such as body composition and the things that relate to that, you know, energy balance or, um, you know, the, the, the popular debates on how carbohydrates impact on that and so on. There's a visibility to that, which I guess engages people both in terms of research, but also filtering it down to the coaches, to the trainers, and to the athletes or individuals themselves. It's the visibility of it that, that makes it feel relevant. Whereas hydration is, is more complicated because we don't feel that we can see it. We don't, you know, we don't necessarily, we don't see, or at least we, I mean, we can as hopefully I think we're going to unravel in this podcast is actually there are things of this which are visible in terms of, of impact, impact on performance, impact on health, impact on symptoms. And once those, those connections are made, we can link that to hydration and make it more visible. But um, it, I mean, do you think that that is a, a factor in why hydration research in, in sports science, sport and exercise science has, has sort of left it back in the 70s? Um, because it's it, it's just not seemed like such a an important thing to deal with, and maybe until until now, where we're starting to think, you know, researchers like yourself are starting to uncover the need to get back into this. I think nobody will argue that hydration is not important, mm. and and ever, it's simple to understand that if you uh, starve yourself from water, uh, you won't make it past three, four, five days. You will die from dehydration. Everybody knows that. Mm. I think that the oversimplification of the whole process is that, you know, your body takes care of those business. You don't have to worry about it. Whenever you get thirsty, you'll drink some. Um, so it's something many people have heard the term that it's like it's something like oxygen. You're not talking about oxygen being a nutrient. You're not considering, you know, enriching your diet with extra oxygen or uh, or having trying to have more oxygen, even I mean I know in sports oxygen has been used as part of, of recovery, I guess uh, high percent of inspired oxygen, but in general it's like water is like oxygen. You don't need to think about it. Your body takes care of business. There are regulatory mechanisms, and just let it do it whatever it can do on its own. So I think this is the um, the oversimplification of the process. I think has led to the fact that we have forgotten what, um, um, what we should know and, and what we should study about water intake and health. And um, I, I don't think it's intentional. Uh, I just believe that people, they consider it's something that you don't even have to worry about it and your body will take care of that. So I think just to sort of pique people's interest so that they can really invest, you know, their, their focus into the, absolute relevance of hydration and i guess we could potentially use the word optimal as a, as opposed to adequate adequate hydration being it keeps you alive optimal relating more to um ultimate performance shall we say um hydration in in that context stavros i mean what what, what are we talking about here you said three or four days or a week or whatever and obviously that depends on various things but it's a matter of days and it's you know your, your performance decline is so serious you might actually die but at the other end of the spectrum it, you know it, it, someone's not going to die but not getting their hydration right how's that going to affect them what are the sort of the symptoms if you like to them and their performance would, would, would they potentially see uh, dehydration has um acute effect on exercise performance. So even relatively small degree of dehydration, and I think it, the conventional, I would say, wisdom, people say that at least 2% of dehydration is required to really see decrement in exercise performance. And especially when we're talking about endurance performance, uh, this is when things get a little bit more complicated. So what you really see 
you see that for the same intensity, the, the, uh, the same intensity of exercise, it's more difficult. So if you're measuring subjective things like RP or how hard it feels, it feels harder. If you measure your heart rate, your heart rate is higher. And, and all these things are primarily driven due to the effect that even a small degree of dehydration decreases the, the plasma volume or the amount of water you have in your blood. And when this thing happens, your whole blood volume shrinks. And when your blood volume shrinks, your body is trying to cope by initially increasing the heart rate, so trying to maintain adequate cardiac output. Uh, this is a, a mechanism that your body can, uh, can do to help you uh, sustain the kind of activity, but this increase in heart rate, uh, it cannot help you for a long uh, period of time. And as a dehydration increases, then, then what happens, your body cannot sustain the cardiac output, and then cardiac output drops, then you don't have enough, enough oxygen in your muscles to produce the kind of work you need. And as a response, exercise performance declines. So things, things get much more complicated when you add heat stress into the recipe. So dehydration itself decreases exercise performance, primarily via uh, strain in the cardiovascular system. And we know that heat on its own, independently of dehydration, also decreases exercise performance. There have been numerous beautiful studies showing that, you know, when you, do, when you run marathons, in high temperature, always the performance is lower. Um, Ron Mon has done uh, a, a couple papers showing what is the optimal temperature to really uh, perform at your best, especially if you're talking about the marathon race. Um, and at the same time, when you combine those two effects, so when you combine dehydration and heat, which is something that most of the time happens at the, you know, they happen together, they appear together, then you have the recipe for disaster because dehydration decreases plasma volume, heat stress because of the demand to bring a lot of blood to the skin to be able to dissipate heat to the environment. It also sacrifices some of the blood that goes to the heart. To the heart. So you have this combination of, of very extreme cases, dehydration and heat exposure that really declines exercise performance. So I, th I think something that's worth discussing because when we... When we're looking at research, we're often looking at, um, you know, uh, tests, research that's done in a very isolated scenario. Obviously, want to control the variables to try and understand what's actually really going on from a mechanistic point of view. Um, but in the real world, of course, there are many things going on at the same time. And um, as I have been reading about this, you know, it becomes clear you read different papers on related topics but from different perspectives that clearly there's an additive effect here if you know you're you're looking at certain kinds of exercise and maxing out um, demands on some of these systems of the body um, and at the same time you then add in say heat stress and then you add in even, and we'll talk about mild dehydration in a minute in more detail but you talk about a slight level of dehydration, the need to sweat. Um, some sports might require lots of clothing. I'm thinking racing car drivers. I'm thinking fencers, people who wear multiple layers of clothing. You've got these issues. Um, there are sports where they're um, pushing or dragging things. So that there are multiple demands on multiple systems of the body. Um, and, and, of course, that is going to be a factor here, isn't it, why why this is going to be of interest when, where these sort of optimal outputs are required. The additive effect um, is, I think, of interest. Uh, Lauren, you're absolutely right. Uh, and I would like to add one more factor that many times we tend to forget when we talk about hydration. Um, I like to say that hydration's biggest side effect is urination. So you drink more, you pee more. Mm. And as a result... Uh, in many sports, this is not a desirable uh, phenomenon to take place while you're, uh, uh, you're exercising, competing, running a race, etc. So if you uh, drink more, you might end up urinating more. And uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I was doing uh, some testing actually a few years ago with uh, um, an, an Olympic team in field hockey. And 
um, I have noticed that all the gullies will never drink anything. Uh, probably you don't need as much to drink because you're not running as much, etc. And whenever I will uh, collect urine sample and analyze hydration biomarkers, they had super, super concentrated urine indicating that they were not drinking enough. And talking to them, they say, do you know what it takes for me to go to the bathroom? Like I purposefully restrict myself from drinking water before every practice because just to take off all the protective gear, it's like it's a big pain. So mm -hmm. I prefer not to drink anything so I don't have to take them off and leave the field, go to the bathroom and come back and everything. So, so also going to the bathroom, it's probably one of the, um, I would say, barriers to good hydration for some sports. Depends your gear, depends your position. And, and even to regular people, I mean, uh, people taking a, a, a flight, you know, for many hours, you have a window seat, you don't want to bother the person next to you getting up every couple hours going to the bathroom if you have a long flight. Of course, and, you, and you've got scenarios where um, dehydration is a strategy to physically get the number on a scale down, such as people weighing in before, a, you know, boxing or, you know, mixed martial arts, UFC, uh, wrestling there there are there are things there that um, that obviously you know force people's behavior but the consequences of that behavior are I think of interest here and the, the reason why we're discussing this is I constantly refer to this concept of tools in the toolbox this knowledge is a tool in the toolbox and there are various tools that relate to hydration um, um, which, which is why knowledge is such a useful thing for, for practitioners and, and for researchers. So, um, Stavros, just 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 because we're talking about um, a few symptoms like urination, and uh, oh, uh, just to reference back to that, I, I attended a great lecture on a program I run by Lewis James at, um, um, at, uh, at Luff from Loughborough University, and that was one of the things that came up is. You know, you've got to be careful with your hydration strategies because you may have to stop and pee. Um, and that can have obviously profound impacts on certain events. Um, having a full bladder can be very distracting um, and that can obviously affect performance. But, but what, you know, you're talking about people's perception of hydration and we know there's a lot of mixed messages and we can talk about how to properly um, look at this and obviously the difference between ad, limit, ad libitum and prescribed hydration tactics these are some cool stuff we can get into in a minute but th th this, this idea of perception I mean people's belief in how hydrated there are is based on a number of things that everybody is equipped with this sort of basic hydration monitor whether it's thirst or they look at their own urine and they make a judgment um, that they feel hydrated they don't how, how accurate is that system in the body, you think? Uh, so obviously there are multiple cues. Uh, one of them, I think the most commonly used is when is thirst. Are you thirsty? And when you're thirsty, you drink. If you're not thirsty, you don't drink. This is, uh, we are equipped. This is a God, uh, a God's gift, I would say. We're designing a way to have this super effective tool. Uh, so thirst is a fantastic tool, but it's a fantastic tool for survival. I don't think it's a, it's a very good tool if we want to design an optimal strategy on what we need to drink during exercise. Uh, so, so what I'm trying to say, uh, exercise itself has an effect on thirst and, and thirst doesn't really get activated. Uh, and it's something that, you know, many people have used the term that you don't get thirsty until you're already dehydrated. And, and, it, and this is very useful for survival. Uh, thirst is an extremely distracting and, and uh, disrupting uh, sensation, I would say. When people get thirsty, they forget anything else they're doing, and they're concentrating on having something to drink. So the search for water when you're really thirsty is something that really debilitates you from doing anything else. So the fact that we don't get thirsty very easily, this is a very, very nice surviving tool. Um, if we were getting thirsty very easily, for example, with a 
half of a percent, one of a percent of dehydration, then we would not be able to keep up walking behind the antelope till we get the antelope tired to be able to kill the antelope so we can eat something. We would not be able to cultivate the earth and, and, and grow things and, and work for hours. And don't think of what is happening nowadays that we can you know, walk three steps and find a water fountain or grab a bottle of water. Uh, think 100 years ago when uh, clean water access or water access in, uh, in houses, it was not a story. You had to bring your own water, go to the well and bring the water. So the fact now that we do have water anywhere we are pretty much, unless you're doing a long hike, uh, it, it's something completely different. So the fact that we are not getting thirsty easily, it's a fantastic tool to be able to survive, to be able to maintain doing things. The thing that, that I don't think we know clearly right now is how well we can be if we drink based on thirst long term, if we are what we call in the literature low drinkers for a long time, and whether we can surpass the life expectancy of people back in 18th century. That was, I don't know, 45 years. Mm. So, so thirst, I think what I'm trying to say, thirst itself, uh, it's a nice tool to get an idea whether you're dying from dehydration or not. Mm. It is not a good tool, a good tool to really uh, gauge how much water you drink, especially during exercise. One thing that is very well described by multiple studies, all the way back to uh, the original studies by Adolf in 1930 from the Harvard Fatigue Lab, um, they will say that people during exercise, they're not drinking enough, regardless whether they have access to water or not. And they will rarely consume more than 75, 50 to 75% of what they're losing. And, and I do that every time. I teach a graduate level class on uh, uh, fluid balance and thermoregulation. And, and I take students in my heat chamber here in the University of Arkansas, and I make them exercise, and I ask them to guess how much sweat the person that exercises in the heat is losing over a period of, let's say, 45 minutes or an hour. And I would say the majority of them, unless they have worked in the laboratory and they have an idea of what is going on, they greatly underestimate on how much water you lose when you exercise in the heat. And, and of course, when you exercise, you don't feel how much you sweat. You cannot understand that a human being exercising at high intensity in a hot environment can lose as much as a um, kilo and a half per hour of sweat. This is a lot of water, which sometimes it can be very difficult to drink that much water when you run a marathon or when you, or when you do a triathlon. Yeah, I, I have a memory from a couple of years ago where we had an athlete um, doing a running, uh, a running, uh, running economy uh, a metabolic fitness test in our lab in London. And... Uh, it was only uh, about 45, 50 minutes, say only, because I wouldn't have lasted. But uh, <laughs> this guy was an elite athlete, but he, he, he lost a substantial amount of fluid just during the fitness test, and it wasn't even an hour. Um, off the top of my head, I think it was at least, at least a kilo, um, um, which is amazing. That's a liter of water, isn't it? Which was only in that short period of time. Now, that, that leads me to... Um, uh, uh, recall that the various people that I've discussed in terms of, of actual, you know, athlete clients is they seem to report different levels of sweat rates. And certainly when we weigh people before and after games or before and after um, exercise um, events or activities, they do seem to lose water at, at different rates. Is, is that going to be something that's um, directly related to the symptoms they might have, uh, um, you know, uh, thirst or, or whatever? Is it, I mean, what should we be aware of in that context? This is, um, this is a, a, a very good observation and very, very simple thing to do. I mean, measure your body weight before and after exercise. That will give you a very good idea of how much you lose via sweating. Um, I was talking to one of my graduate students, actually, he's working with a football team here in University of Arkansas and the American football team, um, and that they have the protective gear, the protective gear, helmets, you know, all the padding and everything. Mm. And also in the summer, it gets quite hot down in the South. So, um, he was telling me that it is not that uncommon 
uh, during a football practice, even though they're drinking during, uh, during breaks, to lose as much as three to four kilos right. as a response to like one and a half, two hours of, of exercise. Of course, these guys are, are big, you know, so you have football players that they're like 150 kilos, you know, massive guys that they're, you know, uh, close to two meters height and very muscular, very big engines, <laughs> as I like to call them. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the productive gear that uh, inhibits sweating, so inhibit the ability of body to uh, actually, it does not inhibit sweating. It inhibits the ability to evaporate sweat mm. uh, primarily. So you don't really you sweat. You lose fluids. You cannot uh, dissipate heat if you cannot evaporate. And the combination of humidity at times in the microenvironment that you have under um, all the clothing makes things very complicated. But uh, the, the truth is that there are massive differences between people and uh i believe ronmon was one of the first ones that he came up with the term the the high sweaters and the salty sweaters so there are individual differences on how much you sweat during exercise and also how much uh electrolyte how many electrolyte uh how much electrolyte losses you have via your sweating so both of those are important uh especially when you're talking about prolonged exercise and it could have implications not only to exercise performance, but also to safety. I agree. I, I, you know, I've been a practitioner a long time, and it's just blatantly clear that we're working with individuals. And I've worked for many years in team settings, rugby, professional rugby mainly. You still got a team of individuals, and you know the problem with the way we we dish out advice in a generalized fashion is is we are absolutely missing the specific individual needs um which adds up unfortunately to um performance not being where you want it um but of course if if you're just one person working with 20 30 40 people in a squad it is difficult you know we can be very idealistic about how to deal with these things and tests and assessments for athletes and players which one-on-one is much more um, possible, but when you're working with large groups of people in a team setting, uh, professional team, collegiate team, this gets more complicated, doesn't it? Um, I mean, we'll get into testing a little bit later, but it's a a big mission of mine, apart from the whole translation of science to practice, is is also this idea of um, inter and intra-individual variability, and it, it you know, it is incredibly important. Scientists for years um, have generalized um, with their data, and it's not necessarily their fault. It's just for, for a long time, journals would not print individual data, um, or at least that's not how it was, you know, submitted in, in the manuscript. So, of course, we've been reading generalized data, but a lot of people take that as, as um, gospel for individuals. So, athletes often are the outliers in that data. So, Talking about outliers, because we are talking about performance, whether it's a high-level recreational triathlete, um, you know, your uh, high-end college football player or your, you know, professional soccer player, whatever. There's all sorts of characters, but these are typically outliers. Um, when you're looking at the data, Stavros, in the studies that you're doing, you know, how much variation is there in the data? Uh, it depends on the studies and depends on the uh, on the individuals. Uh, at times, we do have a large variation. Um, one of the examples that I like to to use is um, actually it's a case study that has been published actually back, if I remember correct, 1986. Uh, a study that was published by Larry Armstrong from University of Connecticut, where he was pre- helping to Alberto Salazar to prepare for the 1984 Olympics. And, and Salazar, I'm not going to go into the gossips, you know, and all the, the other stuff related to the doping scandals and everything, but he has probably the highest sweat rate that has ever been reported in the literature. He was sweating something like 3.7 liters uh, per hour when he was exercising in the heat. Wow. Which is wow. like... Yeah. Yeah. A crazy amount. It's like humanly impossible to drink that much. And the fact that uh, he didn't do that well in, in uh, 1984 in the Olympics in Los Angeles, that was in a hot and humid environment, it was not a big surprise, even though he tried to do all the other stuff right and everything. Probably his best 
just for that, for, for those Olympics would be try to run the 10K. I know it's a completely different animal, but uh, finishing a race with a deficit, water deficit of minus eight or minus 9%, uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that your performance is heavily compromised regardless of how much you drink. And, and when you run a marathon at the, on that pace, you run a marathon sub 210, there is no time to drink. You know, try to run at that pace in the treadmill and, and try to have a cup of water at the same time. It's impossible, you know. It, yeah. it doesn't happen and you cannot slow down, you cannot stop. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there is a, that, that's why it's important people think um about the reality of what's actually going on because you know there's all sorts of weird stuff it's you know uh, it's like cyclists you know when you're bombing down a hill at high speeds or climbing up a hill you haven't got time to just take one hand off the handlebar <laughs> and uh, open up your bottle and gently drink it back or neck it you know it, it, there are complications which, which leads me to um so I actually want to talk about uh, habituation. Uh, we, we, you know, we, it is something I think that is very interesting. We we talked about an Olympic athlete there. Something that happens, you know, once every four years. You're training in one place. You might travel a bit here and there. You do some acclimatization training, maybe more proximal to an event. But the consequences of, of habituation um, is important. You spend all your time doing one thing and you, you briefly... Um, compete in a completely different environment. What, what what is the relevance of habituation with with hydration? And I don't just mean um, the intake of fluids, but also the environment itself. Uh, the environment itself it's 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 very important to get uh, what we call heat acclimatized. So to get, especially if you know that you're competing in a warm environment, and and I think it's very relevant if you're thinking of the Tokyo Olympics and the predictions uh, are that the next Olympics are going to be uh, probably the hot, hottest Olympics that we ever had for the last few years. Mm. And um, I remember I used to live in Athens during the 2004 Olympic Games, and I do remember um, the story and the prepara preparation of the athletes. I, I know the U.S. marathon team came to Greece uh, three weeks before the Olympics. They ended up staying actually in a in an island south of Athens that was even hotter than Athens itself. And they were doing a lot of training in the heat. So being acclimatized in, in a hot environment, it has a significant effect in, in exercise performance. And there are many different ways to do it. And, and there are recent evidence that even if you compete in a cold environment, uh, doing heat acclimatization, it seems to have a beneficial effect even for competition in a, in a cold weather. Um, there are some beautiful studies from uh, Oregon. Uh, uh, Chris Minson's lab has done some, some work on that topic. Uh, so, so getting habituated, getting acclimatized in, that, in, in, in the condition, it's, it's extremely important. Uh, also practicing, like you practice everything, you have to practice, I mean, your nutrition, and you have to practice your water intake. You have to teach yourself to be able to uh, sustain uh, fluid intake during exercise, whether it is high carbs or whether it is, you know, electrolyte, even get used to the taste and make sure everything, uh, it's good in your stomach. I think the Olympics is not a, um, a good place for testing your tricks. Uh, yeah. I, I talk to people many times and I say, would you ever consider a run like a marathon with a brand new pair of shoes. If I give you like a brand new pair of shoes, will you take them and run a marathon tomorrow? You know, like, people, are you crazy? People do this all the time. I can't tell you how, how, many, <laughs> clients, how many clients and athletes I've spoken to have you tried, you know, um, a snack or a gel or something the day of a race and then they, they wondered why they had a serious disaster. <laughs> but they will never try a new pair of shoes or yeah. a new pair of swords or a new pair of shirt, you know, nothing. They will never consider doing yeah. anything no, no, of that nature. Sports nutrition specifically um, is always practiced well before. Uh, so, so nothing for outside, you don't care for, out, for inside your body, but you do care it. Yeah. significantly for what it goes inside your body, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I, so I've referred to this quite a few times is, 
you know, we, we, we talk about physical training, we talk about skills training, but, you know, one thing I really think we should talk more about is nutritional training and, and bring that in to hydration. You know, the, the, what we eat and drink all day long has profound implications to how the body will adapt to things. And um, I think once we take that mindset, we might take our day-to-day -day nutrition and hydration and um, you know all those other things that relate to that those, those those habits that we perform all the time have profound influence on how we will perform you know on that day um, so so let this we'll get to the because there's a few things I want to get to I know we haven't got um, much longer left but um, we'll talk about specifically mild dehydration in a minute because that's a really interesting area um, but since we were talking about practicing um, one of the papers that um, you co-authored, um, which I think was excellent, was about prescribed drinking, um, um, you know, um, versus ad libitum drinking and performance. And your paper was specifically to do with uh, cycling performance. What, you know, what did you guys find, and what, what are the sort of take-home implications from that? Given that most people do drink just just ad libitum. Um. The idea behind that study is the, the well-known discussion or even controversy by some uh, that the best way to hydrate is drink to thirst, which is, um, I think it's a very nice idea as a concept. So drinking to thirst, so don't worry about anything whenever you feel thirsty. And, and this is how people naturally tend to drink when they do races. Um, what we have noticed, and, and we're not, obviously we're not the first ones. I, I said earlier that um, all the way back, uh, even if you read the textbook of uh, Physiology of Man in the Desert from Adolf, uh, you will see that he refers on his observation back when, when people did not own, know anything about how much you're supposed to drink or anything that people naturally will never drink more than 50%. So what we will notice is that people, they compete and they end up finishing the races uh, with significant amount of dehydration. So we wanted to see if we compare the drinking at libitum that most of the time leads to some sort of dehydration has a uh, detrimental effect in exercise performance. And we compare it to what uh, uh, many people suggest, including the American College of Sports Medicine, having what is called the individualized hydration protocol. So design something that will meet your uh, fluid losses during exercise. Uh, and what we found, uh, we found that uh, during the particular protocol that we did that was exercise in the heat in temperature around 31 degrees Celsius, uh, we did a protocol that we tried to mimic uh, what happens during cycling events, that uh, some part of a, of a stage you might be leading the peloton, some other times you might be uh, within the peloton and you're drafting a lot and you're taking a little bit easier and then you attack again. So we did a series of five kilometers steady state, like something like 50% of your power max, and five kilometers all out. So more like you're attacking, you're on the top of the peloton and you're trying to break away. Uh, and we did that 5-5K three separate times. So back-to-back, -back, 5K steady state, 5K all out. And we found that during the third um, uh, part of that race, the third uh, 5K all out performance, performance was significantly dis uh, declined. And it happened at the end of that five kilometer because when you are drinking at libitum, you're developing progressive dehydration. So when you start, you're starting okay. And then as the race progresses and you're not drinking enough to keep up with your fluid losses, you're progressively develop uh, dehydration. So by the third stage, they were very close to a little bit 1.5% dehydration, close, a little bit under 2% of dehydration. And they end up uh, having significant decline in exercise performance. They had the significant, uh, significantly higher uh, body temperature, so we were measuring internal body temperature, core temperature. And what is particularly interesting is that the cyclists will be cycling slower, so their power output would be lower, but their core temperature will be higher. So you have lower stimulus, but you have a higher output, how higher you know, body temperature. So what happens when you dehydrate, you diminish your body's ability 
to dissipate heat. Yeah, no, great. I, there's so much that comes out of that thought process that, you know, I guess this segues very nicely actually to um, the other topic, uh, the other side of this, which is the implications of even just mild dehydration. It's something that frequently people don't take too seriously. And, um, and perhaps you could clarify what we mean by mild dehydration, but you know, the, you, cyclists are a great example. I mean, they, particularly the sort of recreational triathletes, people who do a hell of a lot of training every day, um, but their obsession is on their kit. You know, they, uh, they'll swap out their five, 5,000 pounds, you know, eight, nine, 10,000 dollar, well, no, actually the exchange rate's not near that bad anymore. But the, uh, but, but, you know, it's very expensive equipment just so it weighs a few grams less. But maybe their attention to things like hydration is is not so well um, addressed, um, and we're not just talking endurance. Obviously, you know, we're also talking about um, intermittent sports and everything from, like you say, the, the peloton to repeated sprints. You know, I'm thinking soccer, rugby, football, American football, English football. You know, there's all sorts of stuff there. But mild dehydration. What 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 does that term even mean? Um, actually, the term mild dehydration is something that um, some scientists have been using more recently, I would say. Mm. And, and um, we tend to define it as dehydration less than 2% of your body weight. And, and the reason that we're using this 2% landmark is because the, the 2007 guidelines from the American College of Sports Medicine uh, um, try to address fluid needs. Uh, by keeping athletes dehydrated no more than 2%. So they, it, it's, even though it's not really stated in the document, uh, a lot of people understand that if you're dehydrated up to 2%, it's okay. So minus 1%, minus 1.5%, minus 2 it is probably okay, but no more than 2%, because more than 2% really declines exercise performance. Mm. I think by now, so the definition is, is mild meaning between I would say one to two percent. Uh, now we do have some data and data from from uh, from my lab and data from other scientists that uh, I'm, I'm really sorry. That's all right. I can hear. You. Okay, uh, and the uh, the issue now is that with with a mild dehydration, there there are data indicating that even Dehydration smaller than two percent does have a detrimental percent um, detrimental effect in exercise performance. Um, one thing, particularly cycling. I mean, I'm I'm a total cycling geek. I like cycling. I do cycle myself. Uh, but uh, it's a very convenient mode of exercise. As if if you look at it from the science uh, side, you have somebody who is absolutely stationary. You can hook up. IVs and catheters and, and all sorts of equipment on them. They're not moving that much. Their upper body is stable. It's very safe. They're not going to trip. They're not going to fall off their bike, you know? So that's why a lot of scientists have been using excessively cycling as a mode of exercise for, for laboratory research. But, but what also makes hydration and cycling very important is that many people, uh, they believe that when you cycle, especially when you do those uh, mountain climbs, you know, Tour de France, Giro d'Italia, Volta d'Espagna, all these things, uh, most of the time, and, and when those tours are lost or, or won by people, it's when you're able to climb well. And, and obviously what, what is inside people's mind all the time is how many watts per kilogram of body weight, how many watts you can produce per uh, kilogram of your body weight. So if you can somehow decrease your body weight, that will make you a better climber. And, and we see that. We see, you know, small size, small frame, very skinny riders to be better climbers. Mm. So that has indirectly led uh, to the belief by some that even if you dehydrate a little bit, you lose like, I don't know, two, three uh, percent, that might be okay because you will be two kilos lighter. So you can climb better. And, and I'm sure you have seen the, the posting of, by uh, uh, one of the medical doctors, I believe, from Team Sky, that he was saying that mm. uh, the, Chris Frome is doing that. And 
which is hard to believe, to be honest, mm -hmm. uh, that he's really doing it. I think it's a good suggestion for the opponent to do it, mm -hmm. so so he can beat them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But but there there are several studies that they have shown fake that news. It's fake news in the nutrition. And, uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there are a lot of fake news coming around yeah. this time. It's a good timing, I guess. But. Uh, there was a nice study, actually, that was published almost, actually, exactly 10 years ago by uh, Dave Martin's group from Australia. Mm. And, and they did exactly that. Actually, they study uh, the influence of hydration studies on thermoregulation and hill climbing. So they had a super fast treadmill. They put the real bikes on the treadmill, and they make them climb. And they decrease their body weight by by. Uh, dehydration, and they were trying to see whether you were able indeed to have the same power output for lighter body weight. And, and the answer was that no, this thing doesn't work. Mm. You decrease your body weight, but you decrease your power output to a greater extent. So the power per kilogram of body weight declines more than your body weight itself. So it's not a smart idea. And we did another study actually ourselves uh, a few years ago that that was one of the studies that I sent you, where uh, we tested that in a real um, outdoor environment. We went actually in a place in Athens, um, in, in a mountain, and we tried to stimulate a race. That it, There is a race, actually, that does take place in that mountain, which is a, a steep climb. And we did, it was, if I remember correct, it was around three to five kilometers. I don't remember by heart right now how long it was the race. But we did induce a very mild dehydration before, and we found uh, not statistical. Uh, uh, we, we found, I'm sorry, we found a statistically significant decrement in exercise performance. Mm. Uh, so uh, the duration of the climb was uh, around 20 minutes, 18 to 20 minutes, and the main decrement in performance was about by uh, you were getting about one minute slower. Uh, by being uh, minus one percent dehydrated. So, Steros, just just uh, one thing, because we're talking about performance and game day and and so on. But you know, obviously, in order to get to game day, you're you're training. So, the implications for this and and adaptations to training. And I'm thinking not just, for example, physiological or you know, adaptations by muscle, for example, to training, but also cognitive issues, the ability to learn skills and that sort of thing. What, what, what are the implications there? Um, this is a very interesting topic. I'm, I'm not aware of any long-term training studies that they have shown, you know, whether if you day-to-day -day train better hydrated or day-to-day day-to-day -day train dehydrated, whether you have a, you know, any significant improvement or impairments, depends what you're looking for. Uh, but looking at the literature, there are data indicating that uh, dehydration of, of our, around 1% uh, declines cognitive function. And there are data from adult males and females. There are data from children, even children in school. If they drink water during uh, classwork, uh, it seems that they perform better in school-related activities. Uh, so so there, there are many things um, that we are scratching the surface, I would say, at this stage. Uh, one of the drivers, I think, of dehydration, which is one of the hormones that naturally increases when you get dehydrated, which is called um, antidiuretic hormone or vasopressin. It's the same hormone. It just has to separate names. Mm. Uh, this hormone seems to be related to a lot of other stuff outside of what it does to regulate water homeostasis. So there are data from sociolo sociological studies indicating that when you are dehydrated and that hormone is elevated, uh, you are not good in taking risks. So you're doing a, a steep decline. You know, I don't know if you remember Chris Froome uh, descending last year and, and Tour de France like crazy and, and increasing his lead in the de in, 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 in descent, which supposedly he was not a good, uh, 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 that good in going down the hills, so going up the hills. Uh, so that risk-taking, I guess, uh, 
your ability to take a risk declines if you're dehydrated. And, and it seems to be associated with elevated antidiuretic hormone. Uh, social behavior, uh, even during pregnancy, preeclampsia, you know, things like that. So a lot of things that we don't think that naturally dehydration is associated with seems to have some sort of implications to many other stuff. So um, I, I'm not sure if I really answer your question. No, no, I, do. I think the listeners get from this that it is, it is not a simple thing. It is a complex, interrelated sort of set of factors that one has to consider and all in all, clearly, you know, the implications of not taking hydration seriously um, could be multifactorial in terms of how, how it could negatively and or positively affect, you know, our outcomes in performance. And we're not just talking about physical performance, you know, this is the performance of, of, of anyone doing anything. It, it is a fascinating um, topic. In fact, I, I hope that we have... Um, and no pun intended here, but wet the appetites <laughs> of the listeners for this topic. Um, I, I think, I mean, it's probably a good place to end because there's a lot more we could talk about. And I'm hoping I can get you back on Stavros um, for a, another a, another podcast on this topic because there, there's other things we really should get into, um, you know, um, the implications of electrolyte balance, fluid balance itself, um, um, and um, some strategies for different scenarios, which I can imagine would take us some time to get into, which is beyond, you know, this 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 overall concept of hydration and performance, which I, I think we've done, we've you know we've covered that quite well in this in this um, in this podcast. Sounds good. Um, if I if I can uh, use a closing statement. I would like to say uh, one thing that I would like to separate is um, hydration for optimal performance. And obviously, if we're talking about elite athletes, you know, highly competitive people, etc. And I think the discussion was mainly concentrated in this kind of audience. Mm. And this kind of audience that they're willing to do uh, to assess their, their sweat rate and to assess their fluid needs. Uh, the, the, the question that they get many times, um, I have friends that they run races, you know, and they compete, et cetera. Probably they're not professional athletes, but, you know, they do a lot. They're weekend warriors. They run 10Ks and marathons and half marathons, et cetera. They say, okay, this is great. I buy your idea, but haven't done any of that. What can I do now? I'm competing tomorrow. And I think a good advice was like, drink to thirst. If you don't have anything else, drink to thirst. You know, it's not uh, probably the best strategy to hydrate, but that will give you a good idea. And one thing that we should emphasize also, it's it is not okay to drink an excessive amount of water or any drink just because thinking that dehydration is bad. Drinking well above of what your body needs, it could be equally bad as well and sometimes even worse actually. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to scare people, but there are data indicating that if you gain a significant amount of water during exercise, and, and I think the best data that we have right now, it's, uh, there are data from the Boston Marathon uh, about a little bit over 10 years ago, uh, indicate that if you gain two to five kilograms during a marathon race, you have a high risk of developing complications like uh, dilutional hyponatremia or exercise-associated hyponatremia. Mm. But remember the amount. You have to gain two to five kilograms during a race. So imagine how much extra you have to drink That's because you're also sweating. Yeah. That's a massive amount of water above and beyond of what your body loses via sweating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, th those, are the, those are the things that uh, I would anticipate is worthy of an additional podcast. And I, and I should remind listeners, uh, this isn't the first time I've delved into hydration. If you go back uh, a couple of years, I think uh, Dr. Ben Jones from Leeds Beckett University, we talked about hydration. We did cover some of those aspects, um, although a lot of our focus there was with rugby. Um, but listen, um, Stavros, that was a, an awesome chat with you. Thank you very much. Um, hopefully we filled in some gaps and we've, we've piqued some people's interest in this topic as it relates to uh, performance in particular. Um, I will put um, 
links to your research gate, um, some various papers and, uh, and so on, I think that um, the readers uh, will find of interest. And of course, we'll, we'll aim to get you back on again in the near future where we can tackle some of these other topics and strategies and, and, and get into that um, in a lot more detail. Um, uh, just uh, uh, before we sign off here, just to remind everyone to check our website at guruperformance.com where you'll see all the previous podcasts. This is the 93rd one. Plenty to catch up with, plenty more to come. We also do um, articles, uh, infographics, info videos, and professional um, education programs in performance, nutrition, exercise, physiology, knowledge. So check that out. And then Stavros, um, tell us um, if people want to find out more about what you're up to, uh, your university department webpage, ResearchGate, Twitter, what, what are the things that you would like people to uh, follow you on? What, 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 what can you tell us? Uh, uh, you can follow me in Twitter, and my uh, hashtag is uh, Dr. Hydration. I guess it's easy to remember. Brilliant. Uh, and and uh, uh, you can find a lot of information through that. Usually we present uh, stuff that uh, we and other scientists, of course, do in the area of hydration, both in performance and, and health. Uh, Lauren, has been a pleasure. Thank you very, very much for the opportunity. Oh, thank you. I, I, you know, it, it's been it's been great to have you share your knowledge. Um, I know you're a busy guy. Um, I think you're probably going to need to have a drink now. <laughs> um, but um, thank you. Yes, um, I of course am Laurent Bannock, and look forward to bringing another episode back to you all very soon. <laughs>